2: Hello. Hi. Welcome to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I am your other host, Emily Beijing. To quote my queen, Liz Lemon, what a week, huh? It really does seem fitting that one week post-election, not only does our four-year nightmare finally have an end in sight, but we, not intentionally, chose to discuss two movies that I can only describe as Democrat and Republican. This week, we're talking about a cheerocracy, an obvious Democrat, bring it on, and a movie that can definitely see Russia from their house, Sugar and Spice. Now, I'm not saying one is inherently bad and one is good, but in this podcast episode, I will prove. Why my analogy makes total sense. That's right. It's hot. Take a clock, baby. I'm so
1: happy that you have finally brought politics into old millennials. It was about time. I'm very excited to hear all about this.
2: <laughs> well, we have talked about election and the movie Dick. Yes. yes yeah, uh, so true. this isn't our first foray. But before we get into the topics of this week, I have some, you know, some light banter icebreaker questions for us to sort of, you know, do a little light banter for a few minutes here. So I want to know if either and or one of these are your favorite cheer movies, if you have a favorite cheer movie. And also, this is a twofold question, were you a cheerleader at any point in your adolescence?
1: Okay. So for number one, obviously bring it on over Sugar and Spice, which I just forgot the name of for two seconds. Um, obviously bring it on over Sugar and Spice. Uh, and then number two, to answer your question, other question i was a cheerleader in like fourth grade or fifth grade like they had a a couple of, of younger kids doing cheerleading with the middle school cheerleaders because i went to a small k through eight catholic school but that is the extent oh of my, okay got my it, got career career
2: how about you Cheer career <laughs> <laughs> uh, my friend lisa still has her Cheer, I almost said cheer costume because she last wore it as a costume for Halloween, but she still has her cheer uniform from middle school. So there is that. I was never a cheerleader. I was on dance team, which was sometimes a part of like cheer depending on what activity was going on. So sometimes, you know, we'd play, we would dance, we'd both be at like a basketball game or a volleyball game doing like halftime shit. And I, you know, I would say in the pantheon of cheerleader movies, it would obviously... Number one would be Bring It On. Number two would be But I'm a Cheerleader. Oh, number yeah. three would be Sugar and Spice. And I think that's about... I think that's the, the power ranking there of like early 2000s cheer-related movies. For sure. For sure.
1: Um, You just made me think of something, though, when you were talking about Dance Team. I Like, I always idolized the dance team at my high school. I just thought they were the like they were great and not like idolize them. That sounds extreme, but I just thought they were really cool. And like I remember in my like MTV, if I ever had had like an MTV made, (laughs) I think I would have wanted to have been made into a um, (laughs) a member of my dance team because I can't dance for shit. And I just but I, I am jealous of all who can. And I think much like when Maureen at the end of center stage is like, you never had the feet. I never had the heart. <laughs> I think I too, like Maureen's mom, never had the feet, but certainly had the heart.
2: <laughs> That's very touching. Um, I I actually was very surprised that our cheerleaders in high school, at least, were not very interesting. They were really they were all around like nice enough people, and they never had drama, and they weren't like that clicky. So it was just our cheerleaders were nothing like the stereotype. So I don't really have a visceral positive or negative reaction to cheerleading I would say now it's much more on like the positive like amped up side because of cheer the the tv show cheer um because I'm just like so obsessed with these like high energy performance routines and it's a little bit of dance but I similar to you always had the heart to want to be good at gymnastics but I definitely didn't have the body (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm not like extremely flexible and I'm like too anxious to be like thrown up in the air or anything like that. So, and I'm not like, I'm not necessarily very tall and I'm not short and I'm not like particularly strong. So I'm extremely useless. So, you know, in a lot of ways, that's probably why I'm a little bit obsessed with it. Similar to the writer of this movie of Bring It On, because before there was cheer, there was Bring It On, which I'm aware is not a wholly original take, but let's roll with it like it is. Both share a theme that I just love for us, us being women and gay men, and it's girls being tough and badass and smart and hot all at the same time. And we don't really see stories like that anymore. We usually have to be, quote unquote, going through it to be deemed worthy enough to have our stories be centered. And honestly, without bringing on, and this came up a lot during my research, I don't think that, and so it was confirmed through my research, I don't think you would have movies like Mean Girls or TV shows like Glee or Easy A or even the reality show Cheer.
1: Would 100% agree. I think there's just an edge and an attitude that was brought to that movie that carried itself out in some of those future movies you just um, brought up.
2: Totally. I, at some point in my notes, I had written like it's bitchy smart. I don't yes. really know how else to describe the tone where it's not condescending and it's not necessarily mean. And it is a little bit campy because it's winking at you. But they do tackle, as I'm sure we'll get into, tackle like serious topics all with this sort of like jest, but it's also serious if you want it to if you want to take it seriously.
1: And I find that it transcends, like, the different cliques of people in high school. Like, sure, this movie focal point is going to be around a set of cheerleaders, or in some of the other movies you talked about, a certain clique in a high school. But I find that the, the enjoyment of that movie, it transcends the type of stereotypes people were in high school like I will find that people I knew who were you know complete theater kids or complete nerds or whoever in high school love those movies as much as like people who were you know quote-unquote popular like that I think says a lot in comparison to some of the teen movies that had come out in the past that I think were very like some people would like them but other people would just you know roll their eyes at because of how one-dimensional they were
2: Sure. And I would also say all of I mean, save for the reality show cheer And that's the last time I'll say it. I promise. um, Mean Girls and Easy A and Bring It On. I feel like I mean, obviously, other than, you know, being full of beautiful, you know, late or early 20 somethings being like your classmates, there was something about the universal themes that they tackled that I felt like was closer to my high school experience versus watching high school movies from the late 80s and early 90s growing up because my parents didn't go to school in America. So I had no idea what American high school was going to be like. I felt like those movies were much closer to my experience than other movies that I had watched. And I mean, Uh, There has been tale that Glee is partially based on the choir from my high school, which is notorious, especially the years that I was there was notoriously full of fucking drama that and that drama completely transcended click lines like it was and everybody was invested in all of their like nonsense in a lot of ways. Just it was like a soap opera. So that's so Glee is also kind of almost my part of my high school experience in a lot of ways as well. So a little bit of history about Bring It On. In a classic case of Hollywood always wants the last best th- thing, Bring It On was almost never made. Of course. <laughs> I don't know why I said that with a little bit of surprise, but this should not surprise you at all. In the late 90s, Jessica Bendinger, who is the writer of Bring It On, shopped around her 120-page script around Hollywood, and every major studio passed on making a teen movie about cheerleaders. She was about ready to give up on her famously 28th try at pitching it when it finally sold she was a model turned hip-hop journalist turned music video director and after graduating from columbia she moved to los angeles with her big idea for bring it on based solely on her love of cheerleading competitions and hip-hop music originally titled cheer fever universal who would later distribute it passed on it in the room the way ben digger tells it quote It was a male studio executive who I remember was throwing a basketball up in the air while he was talking to us. He was like, let me stop you. It's going to be a pass. He was trying to be a good guy and not have not have us waste our time and energy. Then I went to Beacon Pictures and was like, you guys aren't going to want this. Nobody wants this. So I'll say it for you. I was really at the end of my rope. And sure enough, John Ketchum, Caitlin Scanlon, and you'll find out for reasons later, my boy Max Wong rallied to buy it. Jessica came into the pitch and started by showing a tape of National Cheerleading Championships, which, again, sorry I lied, if you've watched Cheer, you know is thrilling to take in. Her logline for her pitch was Clueless meets Strictly Ballroom, and when I read that, I was like, uh-huh, yep, nope, that totally tracks for me. Beacon bought the pitch in 1996, and then it was stuck in development hell for four years, with Scanlon and Wong struggling to put it into production. As Max Wong tells it, quote, A month passed and Caitlin and I would not stop talking about this cheerleading pitch. We went to our boss, Mark Abraham, and we literally crawled on the carpet of his office, begging him to buy the project. The only other previous time that I had crawled on his carpet was for Scream, which was a project I had gotten one hour earlier than the rest of town. And I begged him for it. And he said no. That was my argument. Last time I called on your, crawled on your carpet and begged you for something, it was Scream and it made $300 million. It's a franchise. Look, do you want to be poor? Are you afraid of success? And he just looked at us and was like, oh, so you're saying this cheerleading project is going to make $300 million? And of course, we have. So there you go. <laughs> and he has so many other amazing quotes. And the whole reason the script actually finally gets pushed into production, gets finally pushed into production, is from the most unlikely pace. Jonathan Demme, the director of Silence of what? the Lambs.
1: Wait, you mean director of Stop Making Sense, Silence of the Lambs. Like Rachel Getting Married. I'm like thinking of every movie Philadelphia.
2: Like holy shit. Uh, all his uh, laugh out loud hits. Oh my god. <laughs> and again, I'm going to quote Max Wong here and throughout because he is very funny and has the best sound bites from this MTV oral history about Bringing It On from 5 years ago that I will be referencing throughout. Wong says, Demi flipped out over the project and called the head of Universal and was like, oh my God, this is such a jam. I I know Jonathan Demi doesn't sound like that, but I like to think he does.
1: I would like to think that's how like Kelsey Grammer felt when like girlfriends came along his way. Like we talked about a few episodes ago and being like the unlikely producer who got the green light. (laughs)
2: Yes, this is like unproblematic Kelsey Grammer situation. So he tells the head of Universal, this is such a jam. You have the freshest thing I've read in so many years. You are a genius. And literally 48 hours later, I was sitting in a meeting at Universal and we were being told, you're the architects of Bring It On. And this is so brilliant. We were immediately put into production after that meeting and we had 90 days to find a director. For four years, we'd been begging and scraping. And then literally overnight, all of a sudden, our film had traction. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, that's weird. They don't usually green light movies without a director. You are correct. Give yourself a pat on the back. So with the clock ticking, Peyton Reed, who up until that point was doing a lot of TV comedies and some commercials, he was literally shooting UCB's Comedy Central pilot when he got sent the script for Bring It On. As for the why him, I'll let my boy, again, Max Wong, tell you why. Quote, we knew he went to University of Virginia, and our boss, who's really just the decision maker, had gone to University of Virginia. He played the drums, was super nice, and was just kind of a cool guy. So it was really the personality part. Also, directors who come from TV generally, generally will deliver on time and on budget. Oh, I mean, so the, of course. <laughs> yeah, they're just efficient. They're very efficient. So in pre-production, we talk about this a lot. But even though this was only 20 years ago, it seems like an, a completely different time because studios don't make... million comedies like this anymore. And if they do, they're straight to streaming. So to get a teen comedy that seems sugary sweet on the outside with cheerleaders and the American dream and all of that, and then have the reveal to be that it's a very smart movie that confronts cultural appropriation, racial and gender stereotypes, while also winking at the audience. I mean, what a fucking steal. But even with production finance and a distribution on its way, the last point of contention was the ending. Should the Toros really lose? Peyton Reed says, quote, I remember there was a whole debate about who was going to win and and there were people in the mix who were like, well, Kristen's the lead and the Toros have to win. Ben Digger's whole argument was Rocky doesn't win the big fight. Sorry about a spoiler for like a 30-year-old movie, but th- he doesn't win his big fight. <laughs> I think and it's Torrance, like 45 at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, thir- when I wrote 30 plus, I was like, is that right? I'm not looking it up. Um, <laughs> so Rocky doesn't need to win the big fight and Torrance doesn't need to win nationals. My guy, Max Wong, says it's not about being a gracious winner. It's about being a gracious loser, because generally that's what happens when you play competitive sports or to be quite honest, do put yourself out there in any sort of competitive way, whether it be creatively or in a sports way. You have to power through it. And what does that say about her character? We are with the idea. We love the fact that it had this Rocky with girls or a Rocky for girls type of ending. She's talked about it a lot there. Throughout her career, but it's no secret that Gabrielle Union is the reason why Isis is the most compelling character in the movie. It's because she worked with Reed and Bendinger on fine tuning the voice. Union drew on her years of activism in high school and college to develop her character. Isis, like Gabrielle Union, uses her voice to inspire people to do the right thing and to help educate them along the way. Union on why she ultimately made another teen movie at 27. "Quote The cheerleading movie I wanted was about bank robbing Sugar and Spice. They didn't want to go black on any of the characters, so it's interesting. The group that didn't want to commit to diversity didn't seem to do as well, and the movie that was about righting wrongs did well, and that included diversity. Conversely, Kristen Dunst wasn't the first person to have the part of Torrance. Marley Shelton was initially cast and ended up ditching the movie for Sugar and Spice. P.S. Isis is inspired by Michael Jordan, which really, really makes a ton of sense. Oh, wow. I see that When you think about it, her, like, attitude, it's very Gabrielle Union meets Michael Jordan. There's, like, a nice mix in there. Yeah. So this is not a cheerocracy. This is a cheer camp. Pre-cheer camp, though... They had a six-week period of, like, having time on and time off where they were going to be able to rehearse routines, and Anne Fletcher, the movie's choreographer, hired a separate choreographer, Hi-Hat, to work with her to work on the Clover routines. Everyone but Kristen Dunst, because Kristen Dunst was on another movie and she couldn't come until the day before shooting, all had to learn these routines over about six weeks and a four-week intensive cheer camp. But of course, don't worry about Kiki. She's a child actor. She picked it up really quickly and would practice the moves between takes with her castmates. So during their four-week intensive in San Diego, where they would later ship the movie, by all accounts, was extremely physically and mentally draining. Gabrielle Union said her coping mechanism was booze and icy hot, and one of the girls from Black went on to say (laughs) of Union's extreme dance schedule, quote, yeah, I think dancing was, for Gabby, probably a little challenging, but she did it, and it was a lot of upper body shots in the end. Eliza Dushku, who had to have an extra dance cheer day because, as she says, quote, I can't do a step aerobics class without getting frustrated. I have no idea how to keep up. Lindsay Sloan, who plays Big Red, was also scared that they would figure out that she doesn't want to dance or cheer and get fired. And she joked with the original girl who played Carver about it. And then that woman would go on to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Most of the routines performed by the, Tor- the Toros and the Clovers have stunts in there that are considered illegal in high school competitions, even in some collegiate competitions. There are collegiate moves, but there's like some crossing of people and there's some other. But it's a movie, guys. So, of course, that's going to be happening. And because C budget, they had to like keep costs down. So they had to learn all of these own stunts. And by and large, all of them did Everything from T to B, they're very rarely a stunt double used.
1: Did um, anyone sustain any injuries?
2: Not that I saw or read, which is very surprising considering, which is a great segue into shooting. Okay. Because most of these, yeah, most of these scenes were shot on location in San Diego they use San Diego State University as their high school and other local high school cheer squads were used as extras. They shot the competition scenes towards the beginning and they were long, big days. They'd have to do the routine full out many times in a row. And it's a two to three and a half minute dance routine with stunts. And you have to keep your energy up the entire time. So if you're out of breath by the first take, you are fully out of breath by the fifth take. And not to mention the seventh and how many ever after that. And I'm sure... They have a stunt coordinator on set, so they're breaking it up. But you still, you're doing sections, you're performing sections of it full out, full energy, because you don't know when and what they're going to cut to. The scene at Nationals was filmed in Oceanside and was not only their teams, the Toros and the Clovers, but also a bunch of other cheer teams too. And so there were a lot of, Action scenes where people were crossing and everything was like perfectly well-timed. And if you fucked it up, you'd have to completely reset. And that was probably the most tense shooting of all. Because at first, when I was looking at a lot of... so they did a 15 year retrospective or at least MTV did. And then they did a 20, which was most recently this year um, over the summer when this movie was released in August, they did a 20 year and I thought it was a little bit thin. It was a lot of like, Oh, we love each other. Everything's great. And I felt like there were a lot more fun stories from set. And I'm really glad that I went back and, double-checked my research, did one more Google, and discovered this MTV oral history because they had all of the fun stories from set. That was a great piece, by the way. I mean, I found a lot about casting, which
1: I'll talk about in a bit, but yeah, it was really, really, really well done. I'm surprised they got, like, all the players to be
2: a part of it, for the most part. O- almost everybody. They got so... I mean, all of the producers had great stories because, of course, they, you know, were not necessarily on set, but were seeing dailies and getting daily reports, so they kind of remember it maybe best, versus, like, Kristen Dunst, who was very young and still in high school, she's like, I don't remember that, which I thought to be was very funny. So some fun story. Well, I'm going to start with a kind of not as fun story, but so the scene, I'm sure you know, of Torrance, Missy, Jan, and Les driving to the Clover game. It wasn't a football game. Driving to the Clover game to confront them and spy on them and see what's going on. While they were shooting this driving scene, a civilian driver, pissed off that the film's motorcade was making him late for dinner, attempted to drive the truck Off the road. So they don't put cars... Like when you're... I'm sure some of you probably know. When they are filming a driving scene, you're not... You're actually just like driving the car. You're on like a raised bed and it's like a whole like long. It looks like you could tow a track like a like a trailer from it. And so you put your car up on that. And so somebody tried to drive the road, tried to drive the whole rig that contains the car and the person driving the car and the camera people on the hood of the car, I'm sure off the road like a fucking psycho. And in the movie, it looks like Les is an overly cautious driver checking his side mirrors. But really, he was watching this dude get pulled over by Highway Patrol because these, I mean, it might be a $10 million-ish budget movie, but there are definitely going to be security if you're closing off pieces of highway. So that dude doing that got a giant fucking ticket. The best story, though, is that several of the cast members were arrested in Tijuana during filming, including Eliza Dusku and Jesse Bradford. As Eliza Dusku tells it, quote, I want to go on the record and say, no producers came and bailed us out. There may have been, may have been, an incident in TJ one weekend, but we got ourselves out of it. I got us out of it. And there are no producer bailing outs that happened. The real story comes from, you guessed it, my main man, Max Wong. He says, basically, a bunch of the actors and a bunch of the cheerleaders went to Tijuana one night and, you know on the beach, drinking, and got arrested, got thrown in Mexican jail. And at some point, Eliza and a couple of the actors felt like they were in so much danger, they decided to make themselves less attractive by using lipstick to draw all over their faces. I don't know how that was supposed to work, but that was their strategy. Needless to say, I got a middle-of-the-night phone call to bail them out, and I did. At first, yeah, as I said, I was nervous about all of this coverage, but that was by far and away the best story, and it was worth uncovering. You know not want to know who wasn't having a good time during most of this? The girls in black. They basically never got a day off between shooting this movie, which they had never done before. Like, they tell a story in the oral history where the first day that they were on set Peyton Reed was like, are they staring down the camera lens? And they called cut and they're like, yeah, in music videos, you like look in the camera. They're like, no, no, no! you're like in the scene. Be in the scene. Look at Gabrielle Union. Look at Kristen Dunst. And Gabrielle Union, who is a total pro, took them under her wings and kind of taught them how to honestly to quote Henry Winkler here, hit their mark and say their lines and also find their light. So by the end, they were old pros, but they were also extremely stressed out because they were just constantly having to go between the movie and having to always learn on the fly and then also tour and play live shows and promote their album. And at some point during all of this stress, naturally, their dynamic became very dysfunctional. At one point they had a giant fight at the hotel and one of them pulled the fire line because they were upset with each other. And they had like this big inner band fight and it involved a line producer like breaking it up and being pissed. And of course the hotel's not happy. And so they had to be sat down and essentially told that if they don't straighten up and fly, right, that they're going to fly in three other people to replace them. And after that, you know, they kind of maybe got eight hours of sleep, took maybe their manager, booked them on one less show or one less promo thing, but, they managed to finish strong, and they did a great job. And also, as if still a bop, would love to let you know. And Shamari in black, who who's a member of Black, she was on one season of Real Houses of Atlanta, but didn't really talk about bringing It On as much as I personally would have liked her to. <laughs> so the movie, as I've mentioned time and again, has a very you know modest budget, but the biggest expense was the rights to Warren's cherry pie. They had to fork over 40 K for a montage song, which I think is insane. And it's not even, I mean, I feel like there are other songs of footage that that that's about 15 seconds of footage. That is exactly why. So the movie surpassed everyone's expectations when it debuted at number one and stayed there for three weeks, bringing in $22 million domestically when, when it was initially tracked to only bring in six, obviously I now have to tell you another Eliza Dushku story. Quote, a number of the girls and I went on the town to celebrate and they may or may not have, you know, jumped into the pool at the Sky Bar. And we were like, we have a number one movie. It eventually grossed $90 million at the box office and more when it did gangbuster numbers that I didn't really quite look up in home entertainment sales. And on the DVD, there is an alternative ending where it finds Torrance and Isis both going to UC Berkeley and they're on the cheer squad together. Thank God read cut it, though, and opted instead for something we don't get enough of, I think, which is a bloop reel where all the actors are performing some aspect of Mickey. It's fun. It's dumb. It's perfect. But I rather watch that than watch Torrance and Isis be, fit, be friends, because what I most like about the movie is that at the end, they still don't fucking like each other, but they do respect each other. The long shadow of Bring It On has spawned five direct-to-DVD sequels and a Broadway musical that boasted songs from the wraith who haunts this show like 9-11, Lin-Manuel Miranda.
1: I have seen the musical, by the way.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. And that, my friends, is the backstory to Bring It On. Okay, how is the musical?
1: Okay, so the musical, plot-wise... Not that great. In fact, it's more of Bring It On Two's plot, if I recall correctly, than Bring It On 1. If Bring It On 2 – or no, maybe it's Bring It On 3. So the one with Solange and Hayden Panettiere. So it's Bring It On 3 is more of the plot here where it's like a white girl who lives in a like kind of Orange County white people district ends up moving to a more diverse high school where she is one of the few white people there. And, uh, it's basically, yeah, it's the plot of bring it on all or nothing more than actually the original bring it on the actors in it were really good. Like a lot of them have gone on to do, I think one of them was the original cast of the Heathers musical and a few other things. The choreography though was insane. I mean, obviously like just doing cheerleading on a stage like that. I was very impressed. The plot and everything was, was so, so, but there were, a, I think there are a few actors in that that may have gone on to Hamilton. It's funny you bring up Lin-Manuel Miranda.
2: Well, I really wasn't trying to bring him up. (laughs) (laughs) I also
1: have a few notes about casting for Bring It On, just because it's it's very interesting. And you probably saw this in this MTV piece. I mean, it's like, it is... You cannot talk about this movie and the the behind-the-scenes and the casting without talking about Sugar and Spice, which originally was called Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics, but more on that later. Marley Shelton, as you discussed, was originally the top choice to star in this movie, and director Peyton Reed had even met with Shelton over the role, and then a few days after those meetings, she was cast in Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics. And so the team had to go back to the drawing board and thought of Kirsten Dunst in this role. The irony in all of this is that Dunst had just recently filmed Drop Dead Gorgeous, which was written by Lona Williams, who also wrote Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics. She had also recently starred in The Virgin Suicides and Dick. Dunst was reluctant to take on this role. And turned it out several times. She ended up saying yes after she met Peyton Reed and saw that this could be a really fun project. And a lot of the actors, as you probably saw in this thing piece, who were interviewed, you know, originally, some of them were reluctant to audition for the roles or take on the roles, but immediately saw when they talked to the director and started really going to the script that, yes, this movie on the surface is about cheerleading, but there's just a lot of fun in that and a really well done plot and uh, overall writing. Um, As for Cliff, people who've read for that role include Jason Schwartzman and James Franco, who had just done the pilot for Freaks and Geeks. Reed said there were a lot of different versions of this this, like rocker-type rebel character, and that Schwartzman's version naturally was a little bit more offbeat. Um, But Max Wong then said that they had seen over 300 guys for Cliff, but ultimately settled on Jesse Bradford. Um, And he was sold on the movie again when he talked to Peyton Reed and realized this was meant to be more than a cheerleading movie. As for Missy, producers always knew they wanted to go with Elijah Dushku after having seen her play Faith on Buffy and on Angel. Dushku, much like her character, was very reluctant to audition for this role and said to her agent, quote, I'm not going to on this stupid audition because I still can't understand why you're sending me on it. I'm not a fucking cheerleader. <laughs> as she also said, as she additionally said in this oral history piece, quote, I believe I was a little hungover and I was dressed in all
2: black. Apparently she has <laughs> Her and Max Wong truly have the funniest quotes yes. in the same, like they're yes. the ones I quoted them most they're just hilarious and then I mean I love the part where she's like I don't know I was like hung over and then dropped into a split I was like what like what is your life
1: I know that so that to me was fascinating I I love that life imitated art in this case or I guess art imitated life because she her audition was very much akin to like what her audition Um, or tryout looks like in the movie, bring it on of just like not caring and then doing like a double back handspring. Um, Mm -hmm. Much like, (laughs) much like Missy, the producers always wanted to go with Gabrielle Union for ISIS. Gabrielle Union, as we all know, does not age and convincingly look like a high school student, despite having been around 26 or 27 when she was cast. Much like you said, um, this was, they had, Written this part as a very what she says is like a combination of Foxy Brown and about eight other black exploitation characters, sort of rolled into a cheer lawyer defender type person, to quote her. And- when you're
0: ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host
1: And as you said she worked very closely to ensure that this character would not be a monolith um and wanted this character to be kind of be multifaceted. And it is interesting because at the time, Gabrielle Union had just been in She's All That and 10 Things I Hate About You. And while in 10 Things, she's definitely a a much better role, but it was, you know, it's an ensemble role. It was very much kind of an ensemble movie. um, And she wasn't top build. And then in She's All That, she was one of the popular girls, but only had a few lines in the movie. So she had been in some kind of more minor roles in these teen movies, but never had had really kind of her time to shine in that particular genre. Um, And then, as you said earlier, with Black, you know, they all were touring at the time and just kind of decided to do this on top of everything else. Um, What's interesting about Lindsay Sloan being cast as Big Red... Was that she auditioned for Torrance and pretty much she was saying in her interview that almost everyone auditioned for Torrance and then they kind of just placed people in different roles and when she got cast her agent told her she was cast as Big Red she had no idea who the character was and then when she finally picked up the script she saw that like she had gone in reading for like this nice girl character and now she's playing this really horrible person. Um, the final interesting casting note here is that Sparky Pilastri, the deranged choreographer that the team hires, was played by the UCB alum Ian Roberts, and Reed brought him on since they already knew each other. And according to Roberts' quote, Reed just asked if. Um, Peyton Reed just asked if I would like to be in this movie. And he told me he wanted to change the role from what it was, which was sort of a stereotypical gay choreographer. And he wanted to make sure it was like more of a hard ass Bob Fosse type, um, which I think comes across really well in this movie. I think that character just for it's like his five minutes of screen time is just so perfectly done. But that's what I have on casting. I think it was just interesting to see, you know, a lot of people kind of at different crossroads in their career getting uh, cast in this movie.
2: So in comparison to Bring It On, I Sugar and Spice, whether or not it wanted to kind of come in second, it still did. And I'm going to get into casting later. But even the casting for Sugar and Spice, which, as Emily said, was originally titled Sugar Spice and Semi-Automatics because of the cousin to 9-11 Columbine happened. So they had to change it. But nonetheless, it coincided around the exact same time as Bring It On. Truly reminding us that there are no original ideas in the sense that we've got broadly cheerleaders being a topic of interest specifically in the year 2000. But in 2018, Gabrielle Union claimed that she and many of her other Bring It On co-stars auditioned for Sugar and Spice, with Sugar and Spice seen as the more desirable project. She says, Bring It On was the cheerleading movie that was the consolation prize because you didn't get the cheerleading movie you wanted, which I thought was insane. I was like trying to rack my brain to figure out why. Was the script really better? I mean, I do love Drop Dead Gorgeous and it kind of makes sense for K Dunce. but when I checked out the casting directors, Joel Bestrop and Gian McCarthy, they're pretty prolific casting directors, so that might be a part of it. But when it comes to the talent attached, I mean, with the exception of Lona Williams, I wasn't really quite sure what The big deal was why it was initially in pre production viewed as the more sought after project.
1: I, and I can tell you why. So while cheerleading, I'll, my it's it's very interesting because you brought up the, the Columbine edge to it. The other thing that's worth bringing up is that Jawbreaker was released in 1999. So uh-huh. what happened was you had one Columbine, which meant that anything remotely talking about teenagers shooting guns was going to be you know off the table, and like really dark comedies were going to be toned down. And then Jawbreaker, which had done so so, but like you know wasn't uh, wasn't a favorite of studios uh, was another reason why it was toned down so lona williams much like her the treatment for drop dead gorgeous where she was she penned the script it was even darker originally and then the studio you know made some changes and did all sorts of things to to switch it up to make it more marketable similarly with sugar and spice took her original script and and changed it so much so that she actually went by a pseudonym for her, her writing credit in this movie. I
2: noticed that. I was like, who yes. the fuck is this? Oh, yes. I see. Yes. And I know that we had talked about it yes. in our Drop Dead Gorgeous episode. So while cheerleading is a focal point to
1: bring it on, um, and and same with Sugar and Spice, like you said, it's just a part of the character's identities. And, it, and in the case of Sugar and Spice... It helps with the bank robbery, but ultimately the plot isn't centered around any sort of competition or other cheer focused activity. The Mm -hmm. two movies are actually, so like you said, they're being cast around the same time. People are seeing this movie as the number one choice that you want to go with. Um, but ultimately at the, in the end, bring it on becomes the hit. And I think sugar and spice isn't remembered because it was that watered down script that because of jawbreaker, because of Columbine, um, was just toned down so much that it just was a fragment of what it had once been. So to give you a kind of overview of the plot of, of sugar and spice, and I'm not going to dive into everything here um, just because, you know, for time, (laughs) but I do want to give a bit of the plot because I think everyone has seen Bring It On, but not everyone has seen Sugar and Spice. So to give you a quick, quick plot, movie centers around a group of five best friends who make up the A squad of the cheerleading team at this high school. They decide to rob a bank to help their pregnant captain of the cheer squad, Diane Weston, played by Marley Shelton, who we talked about earlier. They were looking at casting for Torrance, but ended up she picked this movie over Bring It On. The police. The story of the whole ordeal is told in a police confessional room by Lisa Janish, played by Marla Sokoloff, who is the then head of the B squad of the cheerleading team, who's bitter and jealous because she thinks she should be on the A squad over all of those people. Um, the other people in that group of cheerleaders includes Kansas, played by Mina Suvari, who's the tough mouthy one of the group. Hannah, played by Rachel Blanchard, who we've talked about on our Clueless TV show episode, who's the incredibly Christian one with a horse obsession. Cleo, played by Melissa George, who's got a constant stalkery vibe and is obsessed with Conan Bryan, so much so that she frequently talks about the sex streams that she has about him. And Lucy, played by Sarah Marsh, who's the brain in the group and is going to Harvard. Um, Diane gets pregnant after starting to date the new transfer star quarterback, Jack Bartlett, played by James Marsden, a.k.a. Jack and Diane, like the song. They get kicked out of their houses when they tell the parents they're pregnant. And now that they're struggling with money and they have a baby on the way, eventually they find out they're having twins. Diane gets the idea one day to rob a bank, specifically the bank uh, branch that's in the local grocery store. And she gets a job so that she can learn the ins and outs. She gets her cheerleading friends to move, go into it with her. And they start studying all of the famous movies uh, around bank heist. So they start watching Reservoir Dogs, Point Break, Heat, Dog Day Afternoon from these movies that they get the idea to dress up as betty dolls with masks so an homage to the dead presidents in point break they have their guns in the flower boxes dog day afternoon and then they use nicknames like in reservoir dogs um those nicknames are diane which is mood swing betty kansas white trash betty cleo stalker betty hannah virgin betty with an optional horse and saddle and then fern terminator betty who is the late addition to the group um they basically have to turn a girl into a cheerleader in exchange for a bunch of guns. And the guy that they talk to, who illegally deals weapons, in order to get the guns for free, they basically uh, say let him. Uh, he they bring on his daughter, who wants to be a cheerleader, to be a cheerleader. And then finally, Lucy, who drops out of the whole heist at the last minute, but comes back in, so she has to be Richard Nixon because they're now out of. Um, they're out of Betty doll costumes. <laughs> this movie gets a little crazy at times, but it's very short. It's only like seventy three minutes, so they pull off the heist. It's but only seventy three
2: minutes. That's not yes, a good sign, I think Emily. Like, If it can't even it's like cross minutes, 80,
1: I know it can't cross eighty five.
2: It's not good. It can't cross eighty five. Not worth your time. I do remember liking like, it when I watched it, but. But it was definitely forgettable. I'll say that. It's
1: it's forgettable. I mean, they pull off that much. Here's, I think, the interesting thing with a lot of the with the two Lona Williams movies we've covered on this show. Um, and this also podcast. Slapper,
2: She's French. Doesn't that have Lona Williams? Uh, no, stamp on that? Oh, it okay. doesn't. So like This also feels a lot like Slapper, She's French.
1: Very, feels like the, very the similar. Yes. Beside very, to our Coyote Ugly episode. Exactly. And it is one of those like, OK, they pull off the heist. Lisa, the Marla Sokoloff character, happens to be in the grocery store when all this goes down, figures out it's those girls, turns them into the FBI, and the FBI, but ultimately... Uh, Diane, the Mar- the captain, strikes a deal with her that she can be captain of the A-Squad in order to give them an alibi, um, since Marley Shelton's character is about to have a kid anyway. So that's pretty much it. And then, you know, at the end, we have this epilogue where we find out Diane, they all keep the money. Diane's husband, Jack, the James Marsden character, runs for Senate. Diane starts a scholarship program for pregnant cheerleaders, like... <laughs> There's like this crazy epilogue of everything and and eventually even the Cleo character ends up becoming an actress and ends up with Conan O'Brien. But yeah, it really, like you said, it does kind of feel like the B side to what is otherwise an A movie, like Bring It On. And what's unfortunate is they definitely tried to play on the, the cheerleading edge in the production and promotion of this movie and ultimately the editing of it. So it's based off of a series of bank robberies that took place in the late 90s in the Kingwood community in Houston that were orchestrated by teen girls. And it was directed by Francine McDougal, who's best known for directing a few Disney Channel original movies. It was originally titled Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics and was written by Lona Williams, who then went by the pseudonym Mandy Nelson. Um, She was, again, really unhappy with the changes that were made post-Columbine and post-Jawbreaker, much like Drop Dead Gorgeous, this movie was filmed in Minnesota, and the movie's premiere was actually there as well. And what's interesting, there are a couple of fun facts um, before I we get into casting. I found out that the reason why the Cleo obsession with Conan O'Brien, that character, it's just like a very random thing. It's probably the uh-huh. f- most like notable thing that I remembered from this movie without having seen it in have- like
2: 20 years. Exactly. I was going to say, I was like, "There's that's probably one of three things I remember from the movie. It's like, she gets pregnant, James, Mar- James Marsden and Conan O'Brien somehow. Thank you for reminding me that there's a character that's obsessed. I thought for some reason he was just in it or something, but I knew there was a Conan tie.
1: So it's not, it's actually funny. So Lona Williams' Based that obsession on when she and O'Brien were both working on The Simpsons together. So Conan O'Brien very famously was a writer on The Simpsons and Lona Williams was actually a production assistant there for many years. Huh. And uh, she had a little crush on him when they worked together. So when Conan O'Brien was told that there was this character in the movie that was going to be obsessed with him, he actually agreed to pose for the picture that's shown at the epilogue part. So at the end when you see like what happens to each of the cheerleaders at post heist this particular character cleo there's a picture of her with conan o'brien like in a relationship and he actually that's not even photoshopped like conan o'brien actually agreed to do it because he thought it was so funny much like you were saying like i believe you said that was like usc cheerleaders who were used or was it like san diego area cheerleaders were used
2: for bring it on it was local high school san diego cheerleaders for bring it on
1: Cool. In this case, they use the University of Minnesota Dance Team and Cheerleaders, as well as the Minnesota Vikings cheerleaders, to be the B squad in this, which is funny because they were <laughs> supposed to be the worst squad. But um the music in this movie and Drop Dead Gorgeous were both done by Mark Mothersbaugh. And I think that's how really? you pronounce- Yes. Yeah, that yeah, obviously- is how you say his last name. Who obviously, as many of you know, is in Devo, but also has a decades-long career scoring movies and TV shows including Rugrats and most of like Wes Anderson's first five or six movies. So that was really interesting for me. And I actually have to point out that Sugar and Spice (laughs) may not be as memorable as a movie itself. Um, or sorry uh it may not be as memorable as a movie the soundtrack on this is actually quite good like there's a lot of great like mid to late 90s there's breeders there's like automatica and a bunch of those other cool bands so I was very that was one thing I enjoyed about the movie um, but overall really it was it came out on January 26 2001 which as we all know January is typically a month where you kind of release the leftovers, the things that you kind of want to bury under the rug. Most grows-
2: people describe it in the biz as dumping season, like between season, January yes. and March. Yes. It's like all Oscar campaigning. So no one gives a fuck what's in theaters and no one's really watching it. And usually if it's a success in January, it's a fluke.
1: And in this case it was not a success. It went on to grow 16.9 million on a $27 million budget and it currently holds a 28% on rotten tomatoes.
2: 28 on rotten tomatoes, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's not it's not great, but it's not the worst. I mean, we've watched movies with lower Rotten Tomato scores For before. Sure. For sure. But I can't believe – I'm still not over the fact that it's only 73 minutes, though. Like, I am still reeling from that. Yeah. I mean, so
1: total with, like, credits and everything, it's closer to, like, 81 minutes. But when you're actually talking about the actual plot of the movie from start to finish, it's 73 minutes.
2: Yep. Released in January, you say? So <laughs> – I, you know, like I had warned at the top, I couldn't really, I didn't find a whole lot of info outside of the interesting casting crossing streams between Bring It On. Outside of that, in terms of casting, you know, there's not a ton to report, but I I, I pulled some interesting things together about some of this cast, about where they were leading up to this movie, and then kind of what they've been doing since then. So this cast, in no particular order... Marla uh, Sokoloff, who is our narrator, Lisa, quote unquote, the informer, Janish. So I have totally different nicknames for them. So I think that's great that we have this is how yeah. co- I think that's <laughs> this movie's problem is it's so convoluted, like the being obsessed with horses and the trying to give them like a really specific quirk can either depending on the actor and the writing, can either be great or can be this, like, really cloying thing that gets lost in the mix.
1: I mean, it just kind of felt like at times they were trying to give each character enough lines so that the identity would stick with them throughout the plot, and
2: unnecessary lines, for that matter. Completely agree. So... Marla is from San Francisco, and she int- she attended the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, a school that I was rejected from twice. But I digress. She began acting at 12 when she was cast as Gia on Full House. She was originally cast to play Topanga on Boy Meets World and had even filmed a few scenes but was recast with Danielle Fishel, which you I... You know, they,
1: ha- they have a similar vibe, though, so I kind of see it. Like...
2: They I, both have great hair, just like yeah. really thick, blunt cut hair. Yes, but yes. I, I still find it interesting that she was I, I guess now, you know, in hindsight, it's like I can't imagine anybody but Danielle Fishel being Topanga. But, yeah, you know, I, I guess I could kind of see it. But I think maybe in some ways her and um, what's his face? Ben Savage kind of like have more of like a brother sister kind of vibe and look to them so I could see why they would cut her and replace her. But don't worry. In 1998, she landed a role in The Practice playing Lucy Hatcher. She's also in the OG Babysitter's Club. But prior to Sugar and Spice, she was in another teen movie called Whatever It Takes with James Franco, who she dated for five years. I knew she-
1: that. I Randomly. But yes, you're absolutely right. And Shane West is in that movie as well
2: as Jody Correct. Lynn O'Keefe. Wow. Um, what's her face from She's All That? Yeah, Jodie Lynn O'Keefe. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I can't remember what her character's name is in um, She's All That. That's why I called her What's-Her-Face. Sorry. I know Taylor, that we've covered... Th- Taylor. Thank you. I was like, yeah. I know we've covered this movie yes. on the pod before, yes. but I really could not tell you. So Sugar and Spice will be her last in a run of teen-centered movies. Before this, she was in Dude Where's My Car, and then she's going to pivot into more adult grown-up roles. Recently, she was in What Looks to My Eyes, a Hallmark movie called like Christmas Down the Road or something to that effect. <laughs> Marley Shelton, who plays Diane, quote-unquote, the mastermind Weston, a.k.a. the popular pregnant cheerleader, she's from L.A. She grew up in Eagle Rock, went to UCLA, but dropped out when she got a role in Warriors of Virtue, whatever that is. Her breakout role will be Wendy Pfeffercorn in The Sandlot. And leading up to Sugar and Spice, she was in Trojan War with Jennifer Love Hewitt, Pleasantville with OG Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire, and Never Been Kissed. In 2001, though, Sugar and Spice was one of her three, quote, big roles that she took on. Sugar and Spice was notable mostly just for her because despite the movie's mixed to negative reviews, she was the one constant that got positive reviews for her portrayal, which is not an easy feat in an ensemble comedy. Yeah. The week after Sugar and Spice was released to theaters, her second big role came out in Valentine, co-starring Denise Richards. That was critically planned and probably has a lower Rotten Tomatoes score than Sugar and Spice. Her final film of 2001 was the dark comedy Bubble Boy where she played Jake Gyllenhaal's love interest. Most most recently, I saw her in My Airplane R.I.P., being an airplane's favorite, Rampage, that also starred The Rock and a CGI gorilla. Melissa George plays Cleo, quote-unquote, the stalker, Miller. In 1997, Melissa George moved from Australia to the United States, and on her first day in L.A., she met Jennifer Jason Leigh in a parking lot. And then later that night, Courtney Love helped the door open to a bathroom at at a restaurant that she was at. Within a year. Yeah, that's like something on her either IMDb or Wikipedia where it's like on her first day, she she met Jennifer Jason Lee and like Courtney Love held open her bathroom door at a restaurant and and the rest is history. I was like, is it like I don't know
1: who who fabricated this? There is no like on what planet? What I mean, planet?
2: <laughs> you know what? There was not a I, I did not have a citation needed next to it, so I didn't double check it. And nor will I be looking into it later. I take it as, fact, as face value. So apologies if that's not correct. But within a year, I mean, I guess Courtney Love, I guess the double punch of Jennifer Jason Lee and Courtney Love is some sort of like good omen because within a year she was cast in her film debut, Steven Soderbergh's Dark City. And at the same time, she was cast in Sugar and Spice. She was also cast in Mulholland Drive. Like, LOL. What Wait, the fuck? Like, really? Yes. <laughs> could not imagine this disparately different <laughs> movies like it's, it's almost the equivalent of black being like on tour and shooting bring it on she is in sugar and spice and then also wow. in a david lynch movie like what the just, fuck
1: i'm just thinking like if she was going back and forth between sets like <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't know. Or like I think better, probably more likely is she went from like one set straight into the other one if she got cast. Like she probably shot because she's like a minor role in Mulholland Drive. She probably shot Mulholland Drive first and then went straight to Sugar and Spice.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Uh, She also went on to have a minor role in Peyton Reed's second feature, Down with Love, which is excellent. Highly Uh, recommend. such a great movie. Rewatched it about a month ago. Really,
1: really holds up. Lots of fun.
2: But my favorite Melissa George fact is apparently she's the inventor of Style Snaps, a device that allows you to change the hem on your pink pant length without sewing it. The product is marketed via direct response TV, like a QVC, Home Shopping Network type thing. And she says the invention earns her more money than her acting career ever has. Good for her. What a flex. What a flex. (laughs) And we've got Mina Suvari, who plays Kansas, quote unquote, the Rebel Hill, she got her start modeling and started in a rice commercial as a preteen. She signed to Wilhelmina and then moved to New York, but eventually relocated to California and went to Providence High School, which is, a pro- which is a private school in Burbank, and graduated in 1997. She got her big L.A. acting break on Boy Meets World and then later was on ER from ages 15 to 16. I didn't put this in here, but she was on another medical show where she has like a Walker, Texas Ranger, HIV storyline as well. Would love to find that clip. Post-high school, she was cast in a Greg Orecki movie called Nowhere with Rachel True, Heather Graham, and Ryan Felipe. And that is like a best of 1997 actor names right there, if I've ever heard one. But her big breakthrough happened in 1999 when she starred in two American movies, American Beauty and American Pie. (laughs) Prior to Sugar and Spice, she was in Amy Heckerling's Loser with Jason Bigg. And in 2001, her three big movies came out. The Musketeer, which I don't know her, American Pie 2, and Sugar and Spice. All of them received mixed reviews, but that didn't seem to slow her down. Post-Sugar and Spice, she was in Spun with Brittany Murphy, but my favorite post-Sugar and Spice movie that she was in was her role in Nick Cage's directorial debut, Sunny, from 2002, co-starring James Franco. (laughs) Here's a synopsis for Sunny, because I read it and was like, oh, this is bonkers and perfectly Nick Cage. After a stint in the Army... Former male prostitute, Sonny Phillips, played by James Franco, returns to his hometown in a rundown New Orleans in search of a stable life. However, the financial difficulties faced by his mother, Jewel, played by Brenda Blythen, who is also a prostitute, makes escaping his former life difficult. With few job prospects, Sonny reluctantly begins working the streets. The only bright spot in his otherwise difficult life is his relationship with Carol Minasubari, Jewel's new protege. I know. And now onto Rachel Blanchard, who plays Hannah, quote, the Virgin Wald, making her fourth appearance on the pod. What more is there to say about Canadian share? She famously was not our share on Clueless, the TV show, and was Nancy on Peep Show. She got her Canadian start the only Canadian way we should know how which is Degrassi and Are You Afraid of the Dark of course leading up to course. this role in Sugar and Spice she was in Tom Green's road trip and Carrie to colon The Rage which I have watched very very high once but do not ask what the plot is because I could not tell you in post Sugar and Spice my fave project of hers are Snakes on a Plane and Flight of the Concords. oh my god yeah <laughs> and she's and business said, time yes she's business time which I rewatched that music video and I was like this is a great <laughs> song I love this song <laughs> And an honorable mention to everybody's underrated internet boyfriend, James Marsden, who plays the football quarterback, John, quote, Jack, whatever his last name is. He went from The Nanny to Party of Five to Allie McBeal to X-Men and then did this movie. He must have been the most, quote, name person here. Who knows? Either way, this movie did not affect his career at all. I don't believe he's ever been asked what he thinks about Sugar and Spice in his entire career after this. He blew up in the notebook shortly thereafter, so I feel like that just sort of, like, neuralized everybody about his previous career. But, yeah, that is Sugar and Spice's casting. One- any. Parting thoughts.
1: Yes. One minor person in this movie is there are these two nerdy video store employees who hire James Marsden's character in exchange for just like stories about being popular and playing football. One of those nerdy video store employees is Jake Hoffman, who is Dustin Hoffman's son. And has gone on. <laughs> he's been he's been in a couple of the recent Scorsese movies. Like he played Steve Madden in Wolf of Wall Street, and then he Nefetism, was also Baby, yes, yes. And then he was in an, another he was in a role in that four hour Irishman saga. Um, but really, the one I thing never I made I, it past <laughs> a minute
2: forty five. Fell asleep both times.
1: That movie will forever remind me of. The flight, like coming back for Christmas last year to see my parents, because I I watched it over the course of like four viewings, one <laughs> one forty five minute period for each. Um. Additionally, I do want to point out that the thing that saddens me, I think, about this movie and Drop Dead Gorgeous is really Lona Williams hasn't penned much since these two movies, while. Obviously, Drop Dead Gorgeous is significantly better. They would have done better now than when they were first released. What's interesting about Luna Williams, this research I didn't find out when we were doing Drop Dead Gorgeous, is that she's actually gone on to found a company called Modern Beast, which is a line of toys, apparel, and home goods for dogs and cats. Apparently, 100% of their profits post-production and like when other business costs are paid go to charity, which is really good. She's also married to David O'Connor who is a managing partner at CAA and was the CEO of the Madison Square Garden company for many years. So even if she is yeah she's doing financially very well for herself. Um, She doesn't
2: need to write a screenplay. It's only no, 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 no. no. But I would say in contrast to just a Jessica Bendinger, who wrote Bring It On, she has had a very prolific career and has gone on to also direct features. She directed Stick It, which was basically Bring It On in gymnastics. I also very much enjoyed that because, as I said at the top of this episode, had the heart of a gymnast and not the body of one. And Uh, I I mean, that movie has the same exact tone. She's also had uncredited writing credits for like a bunch of movies from the 2000s that I don't have written down. But you can totally IMDb her or go to her website. Her website is delightful. So she's fairly prolific. And in one of the 20th anniversary pieces that I read, her and Peyton Reed had talked about how they were discussing about doing like an updated or not like a follow up to bring it on. And they were just trying to like work out what the story would be. So that's very exciting because I like them both as directors. Peyton Reed has, I mean, more recently directed a couple of episodes of The Mandalorian. So You can see his work all the time. He's gone on to have a pretty good career, too. He's all up in the Marvel, Disney, Paycheck Universe. So good for him.
1: Good for him. I mean, that's really what you can do these days. If you can get a Marvel or a Star Wars credit under your belt just to make a little bit of money, then after that, you can do whatever kind of cool side projects you want, which I remember reading about Peyton Reed. Like when he was in college, he had like a band And they did, like, an Avengers-style logo, and he was Ant-Man in it. So he later got to direct the Ant-Man movies, which I thought was kind of fun.
2: And on that full-circle note, we want to say thanks for listening to another episode, or maybe this is your first episode, of Old Millennials. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Google, Amazon, Stitcher. There we go. I got all of them. And if you can, rate and review us if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, or just share with a friend. Also, if you want to keep up with what we're doing on the interwebs, you can follow us on Medium, where we share some of our hot takes from this here podcast in the written form. Most recently, Emily put up her own conspiracy theory in relation to who let the dogs out by the Baha (laughs) Do we get to the bottom of it? I won't tell you. That's called a tease. You can also follow us on the more traditional fronts. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. And you can follow us individually on Twitter. I am at Marg She Wrote.
1: And I am at Emily A. Bijan.
2: And next week, we have a very special episode and a special guest. And we're excited. So make sure you are subscribed or, well, Make sure you're subscribed, whether it be to this feed or on our socials, because you're not going to want to miss it. And until next time, we must say goodbye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.